Asshole Court is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time, especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. will always think that their kids' music sounds like shit. I think that's one of the golden rules. Not for all music, but I would say for most. One of the fond memories I had of the show subject today came from a simpler time in my life when I was 15 years old and had a learner's permit. My mom would let me drive everywhere with her sitting in the front seat of her Oldsmobile Sierra, had a tape deck, and I would rock Nirvana and its frontman Kurt Cobain often. She would make comments about some songs, ask me about some lyrics, and with my lyrical skills and Kurt Cobain's disjointed words, I couldn't come up with much. But she let the music play on. That was until we ran into one of their songs on the In Utero album, Rate Me. That didn't go over well. When Kurt started screaming, Rate Me, over and over, I remember my mom slamming the volume down and saying, Turn that crap off, we're not listening to that. And in that moment, I definitely think that Kurt was smiling from above. That was some of the essence of childhood angst that drew many to Kurt Cobain. Fight the man, don't conform. Don't be afraid to be misunderstood. It was this mindset that was hard for Kurt to fight off once he had a number one album in the world and was selling out arenas every night for months on end. Fame does weird things to people. For Kurt Cobain, it may have led to his demise. Unfortunately, he joined a club that no one wants to join, the 27 Club. Jimi Hendrix, Amy Winehouse, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and others all left this world much too soon. Kurt Cobain is unfortunately on that list as well. But with such an impact on the musical world, what was Kurt's life like in the background? Was he totally misunderstood or did he just need to fucking grow up a little bit? What would you have done if you showed up to a job site and found a rock star with his brains blown out? We'll dive into this and much more in this grunged out episode of Asshole Court. Alright, so we had a show suggestion just a few days ago, I'd already started writing the show, so it was quite coincidental that this happened, from Dr. Phil Morris, and uh, you can uh, do that either way you like, Dr. Phil or Philip Morris, and yeah. if Dr. Philip Morris was a person, then it's also a cigarette company, that's also ironic, that's it. Oh, it's I a love good it. name, I fantastic like name, name. It is Dr. A good Phil name. Morris gave us the, uh, the recommendation for Kurt Cobain. Unless so. this is actually a guy named Phil Morris, and he happens to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, my whole life, ever since I got out of med school, I was having to hear this bullshit. And I write it in my favorite show, and they start making fun of me for like being a cigarette factory. I would go by my first two. If I was a doctor, I would go by my first two initials. Well, I think we should all bring that back. We talked about that in the Bonnie and Clyde episode, where everyone's yeah. like, D.W. so-and-so. Yeah. So that would be like... D.W. Brewster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. P.E. Morris. Morris. Or something. But the like when it was like D.W. Brewster, it was like... The names were much more elegant back in the day, or like long-winded, where like it was like Davenport Wisteria. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where now it's just like 
Bob James. Well, if you just go by initials, nobody knows. It could have been like uh, Dickweed. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer Richard. Richard, that's right. Richard, Richard Weed. Richard, yeah, Dickweed, Richard Weed. Warchild, <laughs> <Yeah>. Brewster. <laughs> D.W. <right>. Brewster. <laughs> D.W. Brewster. Dickweed, Warchild. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, we're getting right. off the rails. Good. So, thanks for that show suggestion, Doctor Phil Morris. And uh, we had a couple of things pop up from us for the inbox this week. Had a cool message sent to us from uh, Texas Wildflower seventy seven from Instagram. She said, "I looked up Fred Durst on Spotify, and I thought he was a guest on your podcast. I was so wrong. True. <laughs> Today alone, I've listened to five episodes. I'm so glad I stumbled across y'all's podcast. Oh." And Joel Osteen is the devil in disguise. I gave him an 8.5. Can you tell him from Houston? Keep up the good work, Texas Wildflower. Wow. Hey, I like that. Yeah, yeah thank thanks. you, Texas Tex. Wildflower. It's awesome. I, I feel like I missed pretty hard on Joel Osteen then. Uh, maybe there's something that uh, she knows that I don't know. Where do we put him? Let's uh, see. He's not too high up there. He's certainly not Pat Robertson level. He got up there. 6.86. So. 6.86. Yeah, I mean him turning away all the people. And, that was a, uh, yeah, that was about the worst of it, I think. But, look uh, at all the people. <laughs> uh, then uh, we got another. We've got a couple reviews from this person. Uh, they pop up in the Spotify, and I don't, I don't know how to take them. But the person's name is Marty, and I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. I. I don't know, but it looks like a picture of a girl. Yeah, and it could be, but the name Marty seems more masculine. Either way, the first one we got was for some episode. I don't remember what it was, but they said that they had taken a massive shit to the episode. <laughs> I do remember that. Which, yep. and uh-huh. I was like, is that good? I don't know. I think we maybe even discussed it. I remember we took a screenshot and sent that one around when we got that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we did. And yeah. then um, the Liver King episode, they hit us up and said that they masturbated to this hard. That's right. <laughs> I definitely remember Marty. Which, which uh, I don't, thank you, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of bodily functions going on Shitting during our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're an hour and change long. This yeah. could also be a bot of some sort that has just <laughs> been misdirected. It's, it's, its goals have been misaligned with what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to go on to some sort of medical website and say shit. There you go. That's good on like stuff. the constipation thread or <laughs> That's something. It. I masturbated too hard to this <laughs> on the ED thread. <laughs> yeah, the ED. yeah. <laughs> so, Cialis dads. Good, uh, good stuff, Marty. We appreciate yeah. you. Hey. Thanks, Marty. Oh yeah, good stuff. All right, so we're gonna do some pre-show scores for Kurt Cobain. Buddy, lead us off. So, um, for me, Kurt Cobain. I've got mixed reviews for Kurt. I've got mixed feelings, mixed emotions. I do love the music that he created, or a lot of the music that he created. His lyrics are kind of hit or miss for me, but I, I do enjoy the, the music that he created, and I know that he wrote a lot of the lyrics, and yeah, a lot of the, I mean, the music's really catchy. I didn't get into Nirvana right off the rip. Like I remember we were in middle school during spring break when we got the news that That's he right. had passed. Yep. And... um. I remember back then... Nirvana fans came out of the woodwork. Yes, they yeah, did. Yeah, they did. And I, I wasn't really listening to them. Back then, I was more into Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. Soundgarden, and I, I got more into Nirvana, especially hanging out with Randy all the time. I mean, yeah. I remember uh, we listened to a lot of the uh, Unplugged and Undrugged album, and I mean, that mm-hmm. still today is one of the best oh, uh, of all the... I think it's the best Unplugged. 
I think it, it, it's sure. it, absolutely. Um, so it's still, and it still hits to this day. I, I listen Between to it. Them or uh, Alice in Chains is who I would. Alice in Chains had a good one. Alice yeah. in Chains yeah. had a real good one. Soundgarden had a real good one, and uh, Pearl Jam actually had a really good one. And I went into it like with yeah. uh, like a uh, I. I've gotten over Pearl Jam over the years, uh, but I went back and listened to it, and I was like, God damn, it's actually really fucking good. I love a lot of Pearl Jam, especially, like, 10 is amazing. For real, it's, like, one of the best, like, uh, you know... Freshman. Freshman albums of all time. I think what irritated me the most at that point, too, was Eddie Vedder's, like, showmanship, where he, like, fell off the stool and took the marker and was writing, like, pro-choice on his arm, which, don't get me wrong, I was like, I'm on the same page, but maybe, you know, tone down the dramatics a little bit <laughs> right, there. yeah. So, uh, you know, I remember listening to all that music very fondly. I remember at the time when he died, I've always thought it was a suicide. There's, you know, there's always the rumors of Courtney Love Mm -hmm. uh, doing it or hiring a hitman to do it. But I always thought that it was a suicide. And I remember always being really frustrated with him because he had a two year or like a one year old or two year old daughter at the time. Francis Bean. And to end your life when you've got a child when you could I mean like easily just step away from the scene you have all like all the money in the world we've got more money than God mm-hmm. or Jesus and to do that I, that always just sat wrong with me um, so I tend to uh, I'm going to score him a little bit higher here on the front end and maybe we'll have some stuff that comes out over the course of the show um, one cool little fact that I did find out while doing research for the show in the in bloom video do y'all remember that yeah, one? Of course, yeah. Yep. That's the one with the, the yeah, Ed the Sullivan yep. style. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Black and white. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. The person that introduces him or introduces Nirvana is David Llewellyn, mm-hmm. who was the guy from the People's Court who would interview people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like after yeah. the so end. Ladies like, and gentlemen, and it's Nirvana. D- it's Doug Llewellyn. Doug Llewellyn. Yeah, that's Doug right. Llewellyn. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's right. I knew that's it was exactly a D. right. They come out of the courtroom. Wow, I just think about that. Yeah, exactly. That's some bullshit. Yeah. Um, but fuck it. You know what I'm saying? We're still friends. That cool. parrot cost me a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I remember that. Ladies and gentlemen, Nirvana. Yeah. There's yeah. a bunch of wild boys who are just uh, set a, to take off. They all had dresses on. But yeah, no, I thought it was a cool little tie-in for us since we based our theme music off of the uh, People's Court. People's That's Court right. was inspired by that. And That's right. Then there's the tie-in right there. But um, Nice. So that was a nice little fun fact, but getting back to his score, I'm going to have to, uh, off of the rip, I'm going to put him up right there with Axl Rose and put him at a 6.92. We know that Axel's a bit of an asshole and... That's what this episode's going to do for me is show us how much of an asshole Kurt really was. Because, I mean, we had a friend that reminds me a lot of Kurt Cobain, just mm-hmm. not talented from back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, not talented. <laughs> yeah. But mannerisms, and I've been watching a lot of interviews with Kurt, and just it, there's I think a, a lot, lot of people, that, too, at that time period were cribbing off of Kurt Cobain. 100%. Because oh, it yeah. was being, that was cool. Yeah. yeah that yeah, was cool. That's right. And uh, it just really reminded me of this individual. So, yeah, I'm going to right off the rip, give him a 6.92. All right. And we'll see where he ends up by the end of the show. 6.92 for Buddy Pre-Show. Mikey, Kurt Cobain Pre-Show. Yeah, um, I got really into Nirvana for a while, especially when I was playing guitar, because a lot of the stuff is relatively easy to play, so you yep. can pick it up. That's exactly so right. I had the In Utero book, the Tablature book, you know, the the one for uh, Nevermind, uh, the Unplugged one, and I remember getting really frustrated trying to play some of those Meat Puppet songs because those were actually really hard to play. Um, but I, you know, as I've gotten older, 
I still appreciate Nirvana for what they did. I think that there's a, a large level of overrating them due to him being dead. I think that, uh, and I've said this before, I think uh, if they hadn't died, they would still be respected, but it would be along the same lines as the way people look at you know, Smashing Pumpkins, maybe, or Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam or something Garden. like that. Yeah. They get more credit because they you could sort of pinpoint and say 91 is like that's what really ushered in the big wave of like grunge and alternative rock. But, you know, you know it would be interesting to see what Kurt Cobain would look like nowadays. I guarantee yeah. he'd be like a complete like West Coast hipster with like dark rim, like square glasses. He could be or he could be like a pundit on fox news like uh <laughs> <laughs> like kennedy from uh, mtv oh that's right oh, yeah, yeah that's right, right. yeah, 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 you, yeah you, you know you just don't know what's gonna happen there sometimes it's most likely he wouldn't be that but true it would be weird um but yeah i mean I, a lot of the stuff i've heard about him on a personal level in the background he had some dickish tendencies you know what i mean they just did as far as like the suicide piece i think the dude was legitimately depressed i think he had a lot of Stuff that's going on, you know, you, you kind of wish that he could have gotten help or something like that. I don't even really necessarily fault him. Aside from, I mean, on paper, it's horrible to kill yourself when you have a lot of stuff that, like a child and stuff like that. But I don't think he's in the right frame of mind, you know, especially with the drug addiction and all that stuff going on. But as far as him being a giant asshole, it's all hearsay that I'm working off of. I'm going to put him at a 5.75. And hopefully, Randy did a di- like a deep dive on this one, and not just a hagiography, because he is a massive Kurt Cobain <laughs> fan. I am. <laughs> I am. And I was kind of... So, 5.75 for Mikey pre-show. Randy, bring us home. All right. So, I am a massive Kurt Cobain fan. And uh, at one point, when I was like 15, 16 years old, I had a six-foot poster yep. of Kurt Cobain in my room. It was just his face. Yep. And he had on eyeliner, and his hair was dyed blonde, and my mom fucking hated it. But, uh, yep, I had that up for a couple years. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the first song you ever learned on the guitar... You taught me. ...which was Come As You Are. That's right. Yes. Yep. And we didn't even have any strings on the guitar. Do you remember? We played... In the beginning, we had gone over the the finger positions, and then we finally got that guitar on that trip... Up to Michigan. Michigan. Yep, that's right. Played that shit for a hundred (laughs) years in a row, and your parents were like, oh my God. God. Yep, so got my guitar, and I wasn't as good as Mikey at guitar. I wasn't very good either. Well, that's how good I was. I wasn't near (laughs) as good as you. Um, And I could only play power chords in songs. I knew a couple chords, but I couldn't. I got big sausagey fingers and shit. (laughs) Wasn't my thing. I was more of a bass guy, right? Yeah, 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 there you go. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so his his music was like pretty much all I learned to play yeah. um, when I started getting into music. But I honestly, the the man, it kind of sucks because it would be interesting to see kind of where he was at, right? Sure. And I heard an interview with it was Conan O'Brien had on David Grohl and Chris Novoselic. Yeah, yeah. And they were celebrating the anniversary of In Utero coming out. And the first thing Chris Novoselic said was like, "Dude, he should definitely be here. This is kind of some bullshit." And that much time has passed where he can just talk about it. Oh, like, yeah. This, this guy, I'm pissed at him. I love him, but I'm pissed at him. Mm-hmm. Like, he should totally still be here. You're fucking... And that's kind of the backdrop, I think, to all of it. He was kind of just a... He never got over a lot of shit that a lot of people go through, and yeah. he just kind of hung on to it. and was kind of a immature baby a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. I love this guy. I was a huge fan. Yep. But he just kind of hung on to that mindset of, woe is me. 
Oh yeah, always. Oh yeah, you know what I and mean. And that's what made me think of our friend from back in the day too, where like man. it's just like shut up, man. Yeah. Like, nah, that dude thought he was Kurt Cobain. Well, and it's also strange too because you're also like, oh well, you know, he's immature. He died at 27, yep. which is extremely young when you think about it from from our perspective, being you know 42, 43 ish. But what what blows my mind is he looked older than I do right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. when he was like 22, he looked like a uh, grizzled fucking like Washington <laughs> lumberjack. That, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he already had a full like five o'clock shadow. The stubble was real serious. He grew a better beard than me at that age. Right. And I can now. It's strange. Yeah. And I mean, as you get, you know, towards the end of his life, those heroin miles, I mean, oh, really yeah. accelerated yeah, his like on. old age looking, you heroin know, heroin chic. Remember yep. that was actually sort of a like popular look for like modeling at that time too. Like heroin chic. Yeah. It yeah. just tells you how gross everybody is. Was, yeah. Oh, like, oh, the grunge scene's so cool, man. It's so hot. Seattle, you know, heroin. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, kind of a big baby and it sucks. And it, very selfishly, I definitely wish he was, you know, we could have seen how this played out. Um, I had a little bit lower. I had him at a 5.3 pre-show. Let's see where that would have kind of put him near. Oh, he would be in the ballpark then with Elon Musk. That's a good comparison. DMX, Elon Musk, and Kurt Cobain. <laughs> yeah. You know, that sounds about right. Buck Delon X. <laughs> <laughs> great name. Oh, that is a good name. Yeah. Kurt's gonna give it to you. <laughs> yeah. But it would be like D dot lawn. It's like grungy. <laughs> D dot lawn. E C K S Delon X. Delon X. Attorney at Law. Esquire. Did you say E C K S E C K S X D Lon X. Esquire. He said, I don't know. He said, I'm just a simple old Southern lawyer. <laughs> Once I get out in the streets, I'm Delon X. <laughs> All right. With a 6.92 from Buddy, a 5.75 from Mikey, and a 5.3 from Randy, Kurt Cobain's pre-show asshole score is a 5.99. All right, 5.99. Interesting territory pre-show for Kurt Cobain. Above Mike Tyson, who came in at 5.91. Just below our litmus test, Steven Seagal at a 6.0. Oh, so yeah. it goes Mike Tyson, Kurt Cobain, and Steven Seagal. <laughs> Walk into a bar. That's right, yeah. <laughs> One man walks out. It's Mike. <laughs> yeah. Michael. Mike Tyson. It was Kurt. I walked out as soon as I walked in. <laughs> Fuck that. They were selling corporate beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 5.99. He's on sale. You guys ready to... Uh, do this. I am. Let's do it. Let's blast off. <laughs> Kurt Donald Cobain was born February 20th, 1967 at Grays Harbor Hospital in Aberdeen, Washington. The son of waitress Wendy and automotive mechanic Donald Cobain. A depressed logging town, Aberdeen has seen better days, namely during the whaling era in the mid-19th century, when the town served as one big brothel for visiting sailors. A mm. fact that Nirvana bandmate Chris Novoselic said makes residents a little ashamed of our roots. I, I mean, yeah, but you know, you, you guys offered a service. Yeah. You're a valuable part of the economy. It is. Supply and demand at its finest. That's exactly right. You know, get a whale bone, come back, bury your bone. <laughs> In a whale. <laughs> Kurt was the only child that Wendy and Donald had together. His aunts got him into music at an early age, always listening to Beatles albums, and they said Kurt began to sing around age two. His young age, combined with the ability to sing along, prompted the family to then get young Kurt's IQ tested 
And guess what? Fuck. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> okay. I have no clue what Kurt Cobain's <laughs> right, IQ thank was. Thank you. But I do feel like he would be yet another AHC courtroom guest that would potentially have a high IQ. But that's uh, I'm surprised unknown. they didn't Don't include that case. story because I love and they're like he was singing since he was two. Every kid that's, that's two is like, bah, bah, da, bah, da, da. <laughs> and then of course you know it's like sort of you know ipso facto when they become famous. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I listened to some interviews from Kurt uh, where he was talking about that time. And he was talking about, like, I knew it right when I was seven or eight. I wanted to be a musician. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I could be whatever I wanted to be. I just had to put my all into it. I could have been the president of the United States. What? But, <laughs> no, nah, I just wanted to be a musician. Kurt Cobain said that? Straight up that in an interview, 100%. We'll get into the later show, our later part of the show, where we talk about his drug use. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe where some of that came from. I still, but that sounds so, I remember one of the, because I used to watch this video. It might, might, he didn't sound very confident, like, in general. So that's It was so strange. Yeah. It did sounded very, just, like, off-brand for Kurt Cobain. Because the quote I always remember with my dad being, because I was like, let's sit down and watch this documentary on this band I really love. And there was one who's like, yeah, you know, like, I just didn't want to do like other people were doing, you know, like brush their teeth. And my dad was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that sounds like Kurt Cobain. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt Cobain saying I could have been the president of the United States. Not as much. <laughs> Vote for Kurt. <laughs> oh, man. But he was a young, smart kid, as mom remembers. It kind of scared me because he had perceptions like I've never really seen a small child have. He had life figured out pretty young. He knew life wasn't always fair, and he was focused on the world. He would be drawing in a coloring book, and the news would be on, and he would be very attuned to that. And he was just three and a half, and he would learn all about the war. He had make-believe friends, too, as mom said. Mm. There was one called Boda. He blamed everything on him. That he even had a place troubling. at the table. Yeah. It was just ridiculous. One day his Uncle Clark asked if he could take Boda with him to Vietnam because he was lonely there. And Kurt took me aside and whispered in my ear, Boda isn't real. Does Clark know that? <laughs> <laughs> Boda stayed in Kurt's mind for his entire life as that is who he addressed his suicide note to. Huh. Yeah, at the end it's yeah. listed to, to Boda. Boda. Yep. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, This is his imaginary friend from childhood. Yeah, that caused the Vietnam War. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say Uncle Clark took him to Vietnam and had Boda killed or no, something man, like that. that been wild. More interesting. Saved his life like <laughs> Forrest Gump. I was supposed to die on that field. Something bit me. <laughs> Young Kurt was also a big fan of drawing from an early age, and as he got older, the drawings just got weirder. But as a kid, he focused primarily on cartoon characters, and I would be willing to bet if he were about 15 years old, he would have learned to draw the shit out of Bart Simpson. Because those who could draw a badass Bart Simpson had some clout in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm left-handed, have rather sausagey fingers, and don't have good handwriting, so my drawing skills are pretty much zero. Yeah. But Mikey is a pretty good drawer. And Thank I remember, you. buddy. Okay. No, I'm not no. a good drawer. No. But I, remember I can Mikey. imitate, or like I can trace, trace? but not. Yeah. Yeah, I... I you know, never really wanted to be an artist, but I did draw all the time and sketch stuff and painted for a while. You, I remember where you would draw like basketball pictures, right? They could do all sorts yeah. of weird shit. I would do, draw helmets for people at school, and they would pay me like I don't know a, their fucking dollar for lunch when they draw right. a fucking Falcons helmet. That's right. There yeah. you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but by age four, he had learned some piano basics and started singing. And the first song ever written by Kurt Cobain was about a trip to the park, and he titled it "Fuck Your Stroller." Nice. <laughs> Okay. They, did say, they did say at the age of four, uh, he had learned a couple piano chords and wrote a little song about going to the park. And it was, and it literally was called "Fuck Your Stroller." No, I oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't realize though that like there is a like Mozart 
made a song, and this is 100% true, that's called Lick My Ass. Really? 100% had lyrics and everything about like sucking a fart out of a butthole. Not a joke. Uh, go look it up. Go Google that shit. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I have like, a hard time believing you in this. Like I, you can look it up. It's very <laughs> true. It, it, it's not. It's not called lick my ass because that's English. But it's what you say in German. This is like you can probably Google song from oh yeah from Mozart, Mozart about that licking assholes. Licking assholes. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty nasty. I was like, damn, go ahead son. and Google that verbatim, guys. Yeah. All of you. At your work on your work, on computer. Your work computer. But also, fine. I was just thinking like, so it wouldn't surprise me if Kurt Cobain at a young age did have something that was like fuck the park or whatever it was that'd be cool yeah. i'm more thinking about licking buttholes back in the time of mozart yeah like, it wouldn't be good oh no, rough. no i gotta get out of that old wooden bathtub first i was about to say <laughs> it'd be a spring soaking yeah before i got into anybody's yeah. butthole <laughs> how much <laughs> what pre-soak varies depending on how yeah. long it's been how, since much, how much to lick johan sebastian box asshole <laughs> All right. Three days <laughs> since the last river bath. <laughs> we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep moving along here. It was funny, actually. We were doing pre-show scores. Buddy threw out a pretty high score, and I was looking, and I was like, man, that's kind of near Mama June. Yeah. 6.9. I was like, damn. Well, <laughs> that's the thing, too, is on the Discord uh, with uh, my peeps on there or whatever, Evan and uh, Meows, uh, who's great, they constantly will be like, yes, my kids know how much Randy would eat Mama June's asshole for. <laughs> and I'm always like, oh, my God. Yep. That one, uh, can't take that one back. <laughs> Cobain's family had a musical background. One of his uncles, Chuck Freidenberg, played in a band called the Beachcombers, man. Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, man. His Surf aunt, music's great. Yeah. <laughs> his aunt, Mary Earl, played guitar and performed in bands locally, and his great-uncle, Delbert, had a career as an Irish tenor, making an appearance in the 1930 film King of Jazz. Really? Yeah. Huh. So his family that. was from Ireland originally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we had Moved to Aberdeen. That's right. The whore town. <laughs> <laughs> when Kurt was seven, his parents split up and wound up divorcing about a year later. In an interview, Kurt talked about life after his parents split. He said, I lived between Aberdeen and Montesanto, which was about 20 miles away. I moved back and forth between relatives' houses throughout my whole childhood. The divorce was definitely a pivotal point in his life, his mother said. He changed completely. I think he was ashamed, and he became very inward. He just held everything. He became real shy. It just devastated him. I still think he's suffering. A bit of a juvenile, as he puts it. Cobain was shuffled from his mother to his father, uncles and grandparents, and back and forth. Both his parents said they wouldn't remarry, but his father did marrying Jenny Westby, further pissing off the middle schooler. Shortly after they got married, Kurt did begin taking a liking to his stepmother, as she gave him a lot of the motherly attention that he didn't get sometimes from Wendy. Mm -hmm. Kurt's new stepmom, Jenny, had two other kids, Mindy and James, and the five of them moved in together. Still pissed at his dad, Kurt knew he had to go with the flow a little bit, and although uninterested in sports, he was still in a junior high wrestling team at the insistence of his father. He was a decent wrestler, but despised going. Because of the ridicule he endured from his teammates and coach, he allowed himself to be pinned in an attempt to piss his dad off. Mm, this sounds likely. Oh, man. <laughs> Later, his father signed him up for Little League Baseball, where Cobain would intentionally strike out to avoid playing. And to piss off dad at yep. the same time. So I'm kind of torn on this one, man. His dad had to be fucking pissed just to watch his kid kind of quit yeah. in the middle of a game. But he was forcing him to be there, so that's kind of another thing. But it almost sounded like Kurt was doing it to try and please him a little bit. So I don't know. I, I, again, this kind of from an early age, he was real. 
I not afraid to be a dick. I'm gonna go. It's true. If that's if that's what actually happened, I'm fall more in line with the idea of it being a, a post forced. facto rationalization where he just sucked shit at wrestling and baseball, and <laughs> then was like didn't want to own that either, and was just like nah nah nah. I totally let that guy pin me till I farted really loud. Because I could have been a gold medal yes. Roman wrestler. <laughs> if I put my Roman mind wrestler. to it, yeah. if I put my mind to it, I could have won that gold medal. Didn't matter. I could be president. I think that he probably <laughs> got fucking pinned and didn't like it. Because the truth of the matter is, if he's a kid that's like sort of shy, like there's nothing that's more like door opening for a kid than being good at some Sports. sport. Yep. In the interview that I listened to, he said that the reason why he was striking out and doing that stuff to piss off dad is. When he moved in with dad and stepmom, I think after the dad got remarried, he fought for sole custody of Kurt just to piss off the mom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and was awarded it. And But when Kurt came into the family, it was like he was the fifth wheel. Mm-hmm. The dad barely paid attention to him, just yeah. was always like paying super attention to the nuclear family, but Kurt was always on the outs. That sucks. But also, Wendy sounds like a bit of a train wreck herself. Mom. You know, like to 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 be a a woman at this, in this time and lose full custody, <laughs> something's got to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cobain listened to nothing but Beatles until he was around nine, when his dad began subscribing to a record club. Albums by Led Zeppelin, Kiss, and Black Sabbath began arriving in the mail. Then Kurt began following the Sex Pistols American tour in magazines. He didn't know what punk sounded like because no store in town stocked the records, but he had an idea. I was looking for something a lot heavier, yet melodic at the same time, Cobain says. Something different from heavy metal, a different attitude. Then, finally in 1984, a friend of mine named Buzz Osborne, the Melvin singer and guitarist, made me a couple of compilation tapes with Black Flag and Flipper, everything, all the most popular punk rock bands, and I was completely blown away. I'd finally found my calling. That very same day, I cut my hair short. I would lip sync to those tapes. I played them every day, and it was the greatest thing. I'd already been playing guitar then for a couple years, and I was trying to play my own style of punk rock or imagine what that was. I knew it was fast, and it had a lot of distortion. Punk expressed the way I felt socially and politically. There were so many things going on at once. It expressed the anger that I felt, the alienation. It also helped open my eyes to what I didn't like about metal bands like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin. While I really did enjoy and still do enjoy some of the melodies those bands have written, I suddenly realized that I didn't like their sexist attitudes, the way they just wrote about their dicks and having sex. <laughs> that stuff bores me. Yeah, there was a lot of dick talk in those old classic rock it's songs. It's like dick talk and Well, Lord of the yeah, Rings. especially Zeppelin, because they were hardcore on the uh, Lord of the Rings yeah, shit. Yeah, they were. Yeah, everybody was on but the like Tolkien. Especially, yeah. especially Zeppelin. They had a whole. I mean, like, songs. Yeah, we call them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just like, no, I'm, I'm good on that. I don't. <laughs> I like the guitar on this. I don't really care about Gollum. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> yeah. Hands up! Give me all your money! Well, enough money for a cheeseburger from the value menu, at least. We are now live on Patreon. Find us there at AHC Podcast to get all the latest episodes of Conspiracy Court, ad-free shows, shout-outs, stickers, and a whole lot more. It would be a crime if you didn't. Big thanks to all of our fans, and we appreciate all your support. Let's dive back into the action.
Cobain idolized the Aberdeen band, the Melvins, and drove their tour van, hauled their equipment, and watched over 200 of their rehearsals. And I love the name, the Melvins, because do you guys remember what a Melvin was? It was a front wedgie, right? Yeah! Oh, yeah! yeah. yeah. I forgot wedgie. about that! Front wedgie, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I pulled that out. Hell yeah! It, it, Way to it go, Randy. It sparked pretty quick, yeah, though. Yeah, that's right. So the Melvins leader, Buzz Osborne, quickly became his friend and mentor, and he took 16-year-old Cobain to his first rock show, Black Flag. Ooh. So we talked about Black Flag. Yeah. Violent ass show, bro. Yeah. Yep. According to Melvin's bassist, Matt Lucan, he was totally blown away. It was about this time that Cobain moved from drums to guitar. So we've talked about Black Flag on our show before. I think it was in the Gigi Allen show. Yeah. Sounds about right. We've actually talked a couple times. Anytime we like do a music guy from like the 90s. Black Flag usually plays yep. some sort of influence. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, we, we've talked about Henry Rollins before. Who obviously, I'm alive. Yeah, who obviously was, <laughs> you know, came from Black Flag. But yeah, I mean, that's, they, they were a super influential band. They're sort of like um, Velvet Underground in that, like, that, what, what do they say? They're like, a thousand people bought the album, but every single one of them started a band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure you can imagine, Kurt was a bit of a weirdo. And if you asked any kid that was withdrawn, depressed, or antisocial how high school was, they would probably tell you they would rather kick a wall with toothpicks in their toenails than to do oh, it all over fuck. again. God, that just made me sick. Oh. You like that one? Uh-uh. <laughs> when asked about high school, Kurt said, I was a scapegoat, but not in the sense that people picked on me all the time. They didn't pick on me or beat me up because I was already so withdrawn by that time. I was so antisocial that it felt almost insane. I felt so different and so crazy that people just left me alone. I wouldn't have been surprised if they had voted me most likely to kill everyone at a high school dance. Oh, wow. Yeah. The original, uh, what's that, trench coat mafia Mafia guy? In a Rolling Stone interview in 1992, a reporter went to Aberdeen and talked about what it looked like to him and some of the interactions he had with some of the locals. Aberdeen was described as pervasive unemployment and perpetually rainy, gray climate, which has led to rampant alcoholism and a suicide rate more than twice the already high state average. The local pawn shop is full of guns, chainsaws, and guitars. Mm, cool. One of the more... <laughs> Mikey's like, where was this Ooh, again? Yeah. Yeah. Aberdeen. I want to make a gun saw guitar. <laughs> One of the more popular bars in town is actually called the Poor House, which is where two young men about Cobain's age, Joe and James, sit down for a pitcher of beer each. Joe is out of work because his leg is broken. I tried to fly off a house, he explains. Okay. Yeah. So that's also they're like a pitcher of beer each. I'm like, each. so yeah, it's a light <laughs> snack. <laughs> that's called a bowling night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know the Cobain kid says James faggot. He's a faggot. Asked Joe, taken aback, recovering quickly. He declares, "We deal with faggots here. We run them out of town." What? When was this interview? 1992. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yep. So I know that there was. A lot of the town thought that he was gay, or at least um, the, the high school specifically, because he ended up befriending somebody who was gay, but Kurt says he didn't know it at the time. Yeah. And But you know, it's like, there's this other kid that was kind of ostracized, so like I became friends with him, yeah. and I didn't realize he was gay until he made a pass at me, and I was like, well, I mean, I'm not gay, but I'll still be your friend. Yeah. But the guys in the locker room would get weird around Kurt because they didn't want him looking at their, at their yeah. dong. He might that. make me gay <laughs> just by looking. Yeah. Yeah, Might so. make me want to touch that little sweet ass of his. <laughs> God, uh, and now I can see that though because the uh, the Pacific Northwest in the like eighties was a rough and tumble place. Not much different culturally than the South at the same time. 
just was different uh, sort of environment, geographic and, and, location. Well, yeah. and, and industries differently. Those loggers were hardcore as fuck, dude. Yeah. Like it was a different time. Now everybody has moved up there and you know major cities and stuff like that. But I mean, if you go up there to like the eastern part of those states, Washington and Oregon. It's still oh, it's super hardcore, like white supremacist crazy red, they're shit. They're rednecks. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. yeah. And you think of rednecks, you think of the South. Uh, no, 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 there are rednecks everywhere. Yeah, but especially up there in the <laughs> eastern portion of those states. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, they're they're hardcore white nationalists. They make dudes from the uh, suburbs, or I guess they're like Tifton, Georgia, look pretty soft, to be <laughs> honest. So that is where Cobain and future Nirvana bandmate Chris Novoselic grew up. It's stuff like that that probably led to why they kissed each other full on the lips as the Saturday Night Live credits rolled when they played the show. Sure, why not? Just to piss everybody off back at home. In January 1979, Kurt's stepmom, Wendy, gave birth to a boy, Chad Cobain. This new family, which Kurt insisted was not his real one, was in stark contrast to the attention Cobain was used to receiving as an only boy, and he became resentful of his stepmother. Cobain's mother dated a man who was abusive, Cobain witnessed the domestic violence inflicted upon her with one incident resulting in her being hospitalized with a broken arm. Damn. Wendy refused to press charges, remaining committed to the relationship. With heavy resentment towards both of his parents, Kurt turned to those who would accept him. I don't think he had a hell of a lot of friends, Luke and Calls. That was the guy from uh, one of the, the guy from the Melvins. Oh, I thought you'd be like the guy from the, the bar. bar. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh, I guess not. You just called him a fag, dude. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Matt Lucan was one of the guys from the Melvins. Okay. He said, I don't think he had a, had a hell of a lot of friends. He was always trying to start bands, but it was hard to find people who wouldn't flake out on him. Osborne introduced him to Chris Novoselic, a shy youth so tall, Chris is six foot seven, yeah. uh, that he bumped his head on the beams in Cobain's house. Cobain formed a band with the happy-go-lucky Chris, who was two years older than him, and they went through a few different band names like Ed, Ted, and Fred, Skid Row, and Fecal Matter. Cool. Oh, yeah. Skid Row, huh? We had to run yeah. into a little bit of a problem there. That's right. So, uh, Fecal Matter was formed in 1984 when Kurt was 17, along with Dale Crover and drummer Greg Hawkinson. And uh, Hawkinson got removed from the band over his penchant for Schmidt beer, which was known as Animal Beer, and Mini Thins, or Witch Speed, which to me sounds like gas station yellow jackets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Witch like Speed? Witch Speed. Yeah, gas station speed. Yeah, they call them Mini Thins. God. This is some fucking 70s slang like, shit yeah. I don't know about. Which, yeah. like, W-I-T-C-H? Yeah, yeah. Like, which. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got some boner pills from the gas station. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly. And an overall shitty attitude this guy have. So once Fecal Matter broke up, Kurt, Chris, and drummer Chad Channing formally teamed up and named the band Nirvana. Yeah. Nerves and crummy equipment hampered their live shows, but Nirvana slowly developed a powerful sound becoming very popular in neighboring Olympia, Washington, where they would play wild parties at Evergreen State College, which is a place that sounds like attendees would include everyone's favorite bus driver, Otto Blato, and Krusty the Clown. That's right. Otto. Evergreen State College, man. My shoes are talking, man. (laughs) No, that's Kurt. (laughs) Meanwhile, Kurt's high school studies were excelling. He was on pace to graduate with honors. Totally kidding. In his senior year, with just a few credits left to graduate, Kurt quit going to school. That sounds about right. Cobain's mother kicked him out of the house after he quit school and insisted on playing in bands instead of getting a job. He and his dad had long parted ways, and Kurt found himself homeless, sleeping on friends' couches. At one point, he lived under a bridge in Aberdeen near the Wishka River. He wrote about his time without a van down by the river in the song on the Nevermind and Unplugged in New York albums, Something in the Way. And one of the albums released post-Kurt's death was titled From the Muddy Banks of the Wishka, 
I knew the Whisker River was around there, uh, but I didn't know the significance of, I didn't either. of that. Yep. I've seen the bridge. They d- Somebody went there and did a little video of it, and they're yeah. like, Kurt probably slept right here. Okay. You know, and it's, yeah, it's under the bridge. Yeah. So it's, yeah. yeah. And I, I read, too, Chris Novoselic said, you know, he probably hung out there a lot, but where those riverbanks, it's all mud. You yeah. You wouldn't be able to. Yeah, like it, yeah. you could see it. He, it. The guy that was there, he was like, it looks really slick all the way here. I bet you the water comes right up to the yeah. edge. I don't think he would have been able nah, to sleep man, here. it's a spa day. <laughs> He's got <laughs> mud all over him, cucumbers on his <laughs> eyes. With leeches on his nuts. <laughs> They could stand by me. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking of. Absolutely. Oh, that's yeah. right. Forgot about that part. In a very punk rock Kurt Cobain thing to do, Kurt loved to spray paint the word queer on big 4x4 trucks, the redneck vehicle of choice. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Other graffiti <laughs> included God is gay and abort Christ. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah. Good. You're going to get a reaction. Yep. Especially in like, yeah, northwestern Washington in 19, oh, 100%, yeah, the yeah. mid-80s. In 1985, Novoselic, Osborne, and 18-year-old Cobain wrote homosexual sex rules on the side of an Aberdeen <laughs> bank. <laughs> I mean... So I've read three different things. My favorite is the one that says homosexual sex rules on the side of the bank. Um, Osborne swears it said quiet riot. And then another thing I read said it said something like, you don't have a whatchamacallit. Mm-mm. I was like, nah, yeah, no. homosexual no. sex rules. I also like how, yeah, because it would have been, it, I mean, they were bold taggers. <laughs> because really, gay sex rules would have been much easier to spray paint. <laughs> yeah, they'd be good at spelling, yeah, too. Exactly. Like, you didn't have a smartphone to, like, spell check right That's there. That's right. You got, like, a dictionary popped out. H-O-M-O. You got to have a spotter on that one. Somebody standing back. Nope. All right, you're good. Where am I at? Yeah. Got to cram it in. I got yeah. mad respect. <laughs> uh, someday we'll probably do a fireside chat on taggers because I've got mad respect for those guys. It's How the hell they get their some shit of those in some spots. places, I have no idea. And it's idea. like just what drives them. It's like pathological. They're like, I just have to put my fucking name on that. <laughs> I know. Like, you'll be traveling all around in Atlanta and you'll see it on like one of the overhangs on yeah. the freeway yeah. that like tell you the exit. So like, you had to climb up there yeah. and do that. Especially when you see the real big ones where it's like 20 foot letters. On the side, I'm like, wow, good for you. Yeah. I've heard that it's like um, they'll have to drape black blankets from it to kind of make it look like it's still dark in there. And then yeah. you can go in and pop up your ladder and spray whatever uh, you want. There's okay. a lot of stuff that have. I remember seeing one in action at a MARTA station and it was choreographed so well. It was amazing. Dude tagged the wall and then the cop immediately smelling spray paint starts walking over that way, that dude dropped his spray paint can into a girl's bag. She went the opposite way. He goes the opposite way. The cop was totally befuddled. <laughs> oh, and I was just watching it all go down. I was like, oh, that was badass, dude. <laughs> and what it said on the wall was homosexual sex <laughs> rules. rules. And it's on the side of a bank. That's right. While Osborne and Novoselic hid in a garbage dumpster, Cobain was caught and arrested. A police report lists the contents of his pockets. A guitar pick, a key... A beer, a mood ring, and a cassette by the militant punk band Millions of Dead Cops. <laughs> That's that one's gonna hurt you. <laughs> a mood ring too. Yeah. My oh. mood is <laughs> militant, black. Yeah, I was about to say a black mood ring. He received a hundred and eighty dollar fine and a thirty day suspended sentence. In late nineteen eighty six, Cobain moved into an apartment, paying his rent by working at the Polynesian Resort a themed resort on the Pacific coast at Ocean Springs, Washington. During this time, he traveled frequently to Olympia to go to rock concerts and met a total punk rockin' chick named Tracy Miranda. The relationship was very close but strained because they were broke as fuck, 
and Kurt was always on the road playing gigs, earning enough money to only lose $50 that day. Miranda supported the couple by working at a cafeteria of the Boeing plant in Auburn, Washington, often stealing food to get by. I can't talk too much shit. In college, my roommates and I all worked at restaurants. We'd come home with boxes of to-go shit and just kind of throw it on the table and have at it. So Yeah. Well, yeah. and honestly, that was a, it's sad that people can't do that anymore. Like, the idea of somebody, like, working at a cafeteria and paying for an apartment, just not even possible no, anymore. No, that ain't happening. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. Like, to get through school, who cares? You know what I mean? But yeah. No. Cobain was dedicated to working anytime he could to earn money, no big or how small the job. Again, totally kidding. He spent most of his time sleeping late into the evening, watching television, and concentrating on his art projects. Miranda's insistence that he get a job caused arguments that influenced Cobain to write the song About a Girl, which appeared on the Nirvana album Bleach. Uh, she didn't know that the song was about her until long after he died. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hopefully yeah. she got a royalty check off that. She also has a big credit for another song. So when they were dating, I guess, like, they used to get drunk all the time, mm-hmm. and she wrote on the wall one time, Kurt smells like teen spirit, which was, teen spirit is a deodorant mm-hmm. from yep. back in the day. Yep. And that's where you get the name, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Huh. God, I hope you got a check out of this. Can you imagine? You're working at the cafeteria at Boeing while your fucking boyfriend like huffs glue and does art projects. <laughs> she was like one of the four people at his funeral. Yeah. Like the real funeral. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, then hopefully she got paid. I'm sure she did. Yeah. They probably threw her a bone. If Courtney was in charge of everything. Well, but I'm sure Chris Novoselicard then probably hooked it up. I yeah, don't know. We maybe. should look into that. Yeah. Soon after the breakup from Tracy, Cobain began dating Toby Vale, an influential punk zinester of the Riot Girl band Bikini Kill. So mm-hmm. I had to Google what the fuck a punk zinester was. I think zinester, isn't it? They do like magazines? So, yes. So, okay. uh, well, that might make a little bit more sense. sense. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a play on the word zinester, but also magazine. Oh, zinester. All right, so yeah, punk zine, or zine as I was calling it, <laughs> is related to punk subculture and hardcore punk music genre. Often uh, primitively or casually produced, they feature punk literature, such as social commentary, punk poetry, news, gossip, music reviews, and articles about punk rock bands or regional punk scenes. What we're talking about today in this episode is everybody sucks. That's right. (laughs) When I read this, all I could think of is a dude with a foot-tall mohawk, a black leather jacket, chains on his wallet and pants, trying to coax some kids playing hacky sack into coming to their punk show. Hey, you've really got to listen to this Gigi Allen. I mean, it's just next level. It'll change your life. Social fucking commentary is incredible, man. It just talks about how everything is shit. So to sort of show that, he shits on stage. (laughs) On everything. (laughs) On everything. After meeting one of the chicks he truly yearned for, Toby Vale, Cobain vomited, overwhelmed with anxiety caused by his infatuation with her. This event inspired the lyric, Love you so much it makes me sick, in the song Aneurysm. Okay. While Cobain regarded Vale as his female counterpart, his relationship with her waned. He desired the maternal comfort of a traditional relationship, which Vale regarded as sexist within a countercultural punk rock community. Vale's lovers were described by her friend Alice as fashion accessories. And in no shocking twist, Kurt wrote many of his songs about his time with Vale. Uh, and I, I read somewhere, including one, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, was based about his time with her. Yeah, okay. yeah sure. In the infancy of Nirvana, Cobain was very disenchanted after touring because of the band's inability to draw big crowds and the difficulty in supporting themselves financially. I read about uh, one of the apartments that Kurt and Chris Novoselic had, mm-hmm. and it sounded like a complete disaster. Like, no furniture. Couldn't couple, be any worse. Guitars, <laughs> it like, couldn't be any worse than Guns N' Roses' apartment where they had to 
Like they literally made it, right? burn drumsticks for heat. Yeah, <laughs> right. Then they make it or something like that. Off I the think back so. of yeah, a building. Exactly. Yeah, Can't remember yeah how cardboard or something like that. They were the head of the curve on the tiny home movement. <laughs> yeah, there, like shanty Angeles. shack yeah. on fucking yeah Ventura Boulevard. No, I did see a lot of uh, videos from this time where they're like riding around in a tour van, but it's like like a Scooby Doo machine kind yeah, of. Yeah. And uh, they've got basically like futon mattresses on there, like egg crate mattresses that they would just bring into wherever they were at and plop down on the floor. I mean, if you're a young kid, you don't really give a shit. It's funny because when you're surrounded by poor people, there's no stigma to it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was what I valued a lot when I was out in Hawaii. I was like, I don't feel bad about being poor because everybody's Everyone's poor. Everyone's <laughs> poor here. During the first few years of playing together, Novoselic and Cobain were host to a succession of drummers. Eventually, the band did settle on Chad Channing with Nirvana recorded the album Bleach, which was released on Sub Pop in 1989. The band went on a European tour and signed with DGC when they received an advance of $287,000. So that was the first real big money they got. That's huge money for them. Yeah, that's a big payday back yep. in the 80s. It so they got that before Bleach or the, after Bleach? They put out Bleach and then went on a European tour. And they got on the Geffen Company, the yep, David Geffen Company. Geffen okay. fronted them the 287000 yep. And they still said Kurt like loved shitty, like cheap equipment. Yeah, sure. Um, because it made like distortion yeah. better. Yeah, yeah it's sure. part of the, like punk aesthetic. Yeah, it's like uh, with Jack White from the White Stripes when he was playing initially with the White Stripes, he was playing on like Sears Roebuck guitars for forever. <laughs> huh. Yeah, just because it sounded good to him. Yeah, it just in looked, that sense, you know, it didn't sound perfect. Well, yeah, if you don't have money, you get used to playing that stuff. You figure out how it works, and there you go. That's it. Honestly, that makes you an even better. Once uh, you get musician, a real, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also it's like you're you're playing with a handicap, yeah. you know, an instrument the versus the perfect instruments yeah. and stuff like that. So if you learn how to play with the handicap, once you get on a good one, oh yeah. Well, even Elvis, remember in that episode, he played on a little kid's guitar until he finally <laughs> scored enough money to uh, oh, buy a right. real adult guitar. That's yeah. Right. Given everything he was now dealing with, Kurt had a bit of an onstage breakdown in 1989 at a show in Rome near the end of that particularly grueling European tour. Says Bruce Pavitt co-owner of Sub Pop Records, Nirvana's first label. He said after four or five songs, he quit playing and climbed up the speaker column of speakers and was just going to jump off. The bouncers were freaking out and everybody was just begging him to come down. He was saying, no, no, I'm just going to dive. And he had really reached his limit. People literally saw a guy wig out in front of them who could even break his neck if he didn't get it together. Cobain was eventually talked down, even with the band's first taste of success. Kurt wasn't satisfied with the sound, in particular, the drummer. Not long after what the band thought was their big break, Cobain was dissatisfied with Channing's style, and Channing was upset at the fact that he didn't have any say in the songwriting. Subsequently, Kurt fired him. In September 1990, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced the band to drummer Dave Grohl, whose Washington, D.C. band Scream had broken up. Grohl auditioned for Novoselic and Cobain days after arriving in Seattle. Novoselic later said, We knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. Grohl told Q Magazine, I remember being in the same room with him and thinking, what? That's Nirvana? Are you kidding me? Because on the record, they look like a couple psycho lumberjacks. I was like, wait, <laughs> that little dude and that big motherfucker? You're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> Girl helped the band record their 1991 major label debut, Nevermind. With Nevermind's lead single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana quickly entered the mainstream, popularizing the subgenre and alternative rock called grunge. Yep. I remember the first time I ever heard that song, and I remember immediately liking it and just being like, well, that sounds good. I was at a bowling alley. It was just like it got played on the thing, and I was just like, I don't know who this is, but this is really, really cool. And in fact, when he died, 
I was not a, that huge of a fan. And I was like, oh, that's that guy that did that song I liked a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story about the the first time I heard it. I'll tell it here in a little bit. Uh, the success of Nevermind provided numerous Seattle bands such as the aforementioned Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden access to wider audiences. As a result, alternative rock became a dominant genre on radio and music television in the U.S. during the first half of the 90s and pretty much took up most of our airtime on our tape oh, decks, oh, yeah. players and Yeah, and it's also you can blame all of that as well for the post-grunge era of shit bands like Puddle of Mud and Creed. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah they were like, everybody wanted, everybody had a weird Eddie Vedder-esque voice. Quarters in <laughs> session. Yeah. A verdict is in. <laughs> Nirvana was considered the flagship band of Generation X, and Cobain found himself reluctantly anointed by the media as a Generation spokesman. He resented this characterization since he believed his artistic message had been misinterpreted by the public all along. Although Kurt was thrilled when the underground bands infiltrate the mainstream charts, he was outraged by others who felt rode the coattails of the alternative boom. His favorite target was Pearl Jam, also from Seattle, which he accused of corporate alternative and cock rock fusion in a Musician Magazine interview. <laughs> Jeez. Every article I've seen written about them, they mention us, and they're baiting that fact, said Cobain. I'd love to be erased from my association with that band and other corporate bands like the Nymphs and a few other felons. I do feel a duty to warn the kids of false music that's claiming to be underground or alternative. They're jumping on the alternative bandwagon. That's very Gigi Allen-esque there, brother. Yeah, man. Also, yeah. like, it's not fair at all. Pearl Jam was pretty legit because they came out of, uh, like, actually it's funny because Mother Love Bone yep. was where they were born out of. And Mother Love Bone was like a hair metal band yeah. <laughs> for a minute. And then it switched when, uh, what's his name, died. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. And that's when they did yeah. Temple of the Dog, dog. and that's and then, where Chris yeah. Cornell and them met. Yeah, and, yeah, interesting. And uh, Pearl Jam was the one was the only ones like bucking Ticketmaster mm -hmm. shortly after yeah. that, like you know, early '90s, mid '90s. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's funny. He said, "I don't know what I did to them. If it was a personal vendetta against us, he should come to us." Said Pearl Jam's Jeff Ament, who said Cobain barely said hello to them when they did a recent mini tour together. To have that sort of pent-up frustration, the guy obviously must have some deep insecurities about himself. Does he think we're riding his bandwagon for real? So, I mean, they responded correctly, probably like, whatever, dude. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, it was yeah. a corporate response, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Use your PR team on that? <laughs> so, uh, I definitely remember the first time that I heard the song Smells Like Teen mm -hmm. Spirit. We were in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and it was right between Christmas and New Year's, mm -hmm. and they were doing the MTV Countdown, like, video of the year. And if you'll recall, there was another video that came out in 1991 that we were sure, my sister and I, my sister's three years older than me, and I was 11 at this time. And I was, I mean, it got to like number four, number three. We're like, all right, MC Hammer's got to be number one. Yeah, can't, can't touch, touch this. It. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's got to be number one. Got to be. So we didn't really know who was going to be number two, and it was MC Hammer. Like, we're like, what? All right. So what the <laughs> fuck is number one? And Smells Like Teen Spirit yeah. came on. Deadass didn't like it. I was like, this is bullshit. This should be MC Hammer. I don't know why this is number one. Again, I was 11 years old. Yeah. My sister loved like Janet Jackson, New sure. Kids on the Block, all that bullshit. So that's kind of what I was forced to listen to a little yeah. bit when I was 11. Well, that's what you had the easy access to. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. So that I remember the first time hearing it, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. That shouldn't have even been the number one album. So obviously Kurt's whole anti-social, anti-corporate vibe didn't jive well with him personally as the band found international stardom. After the Nevermind album came out, they played over 100 shows in five months on four continents. 
I don't blame the average 17-year-old punk rock kid for calling me a sellout, Cobain said in that 1992 Rolling Stone interview. I understand that. And maybe when they grow a little bit older, they'll realize there's more things to life than living out your rock and roll identity so righteously. So it almost sounds like he gave he's in all, a little He's all bit. over the place. <laughs> I, I heard one of the things that frustrated him was that he would be up there on stage rocking out, and he would look out into the crowd, and he would see what he characterized as nothing but the people that used to talk shit about him mm-hmm. and like all the dudes that would quote unquote like threaten to beat him up mm-hmm. in high school and now all these are all the guys that are lining up to be in the show or you know to watch the show and stuff like that and he's like I hate these guys you yeah. know like the, I want the underground punk scene basically yeah but then, even then when he had it he didn't like that either yeah. he wasn't didn't have enough success the sound wasn't right yeah you know whatever and then he gets it and then he's like no I hate this and then he's like I don't you know call me a a fucking sellout, but you know when you get a little older and more mature, you might realize that the, you know we, I don't know. You're just trying to use like a fucking decadohedron here. There's 12 different angles to everything you want to talk about. Although the band's label Geffen doubted the album would sell more than three million in just four months, it had sold over 30 million worldwide. Yeah. When you put three young dudes on a tour bus and send them around the world, you can only imagine what that's like. But just like you, they had some stuff to deal with on a day-to-day basis while they were out on the road. Well, maybe not Dave Grohl. Dave's just psyched, said Nils Bernstein, a good friend of the band. He's 22, and he's a womanizer. and He's just like, score. <laughs> Novoselic, according to Bernstein, had a drinking problem, but went on the wagon that year so he could stay on top of his exploding career. Mm-hmm. But rumors really started to fly about Cobain. An article in the music industry magazine Hits said Cobain was slam dancing with Mr. Brownstone, a Guns N' Roses slang for doing heroin. A January 1992 profile in BAM magazine Claimed Cobain was nodding off in mid-sentence, adding that the pinned pupils, sunken cheeks, and scabbed, sallow skin suggest something more serious than mere fatigue. Grody. I mean, you can see it in the Saturday Night Live performance that Mm -hmm. they do. According to rumors, him and Courtney Love had just shot up when they basically Mm -hmm. uh, on the way over there or something, or right before they got picked up. So they get dropped off, and you can see, like, on the performance, like, Kurt has his eyes almost, like, half-closed, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just singing Smells Like Teen Spirit. But, like, he's kind of missing a couple words and stuff like that. And then they said that he barely gets through the performance. They go backstage, and he was throwing up for, like, an hour backstage afterwards. Well, that's the thing. You're missing out. The problem is is that uh, that whole scene had been done by the kings of jazz back in the 40s (laughs) and 50s. But they do. He also idolized. Yes. Charlie Parker and, um, you know, uh, John Coltrane knew, like, do your set and then do heroin. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Wait till afterwards, and then you can (laughs) nod out. Yeah. Cobain denies he was using heroin. I don't even drink anymore because it destroys my stomach, he protested. My body wouldn't allow me to take drugs if I wanted to because I'm so weak all the time. All drugs are a waste of time, he continued. They destroy your memory and your self-respect and everything that goes along with your self-esteem. They make you feel good for a little while, then they destroy you. They're no good at all. But I'm not going to go around preaching against it. It's your choice. But in my experience, I found they're a waste of time. Uh, yeah, dude. Yeah, I just, man, he just has a different answer for every, depending on what time of day it is and who asks. Yeah. yeah. And I'll be honest, one of the first things I think of when I think of Kurt Cobain. Heroin. Is heroin. Of, of course. course. The dude seemed to love heroin. Well, nobody doesn't love it once you give it a shot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it just sort of sells itself. Man, this 16-year-old kid loves yeah. pussy. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. It's crazy. He it's, banged his girlfriend, and now he just can't get enough. There's a, Heroin has always been one where uh, it's, everybody that does it, they're like, oh, it's so good. You better watch out. So I'm like, 
I'll say no. Yeah. Yeah. I, I took, uh, what was it, Barbara? No. Oh, Nancy, Nancy Reagan's. Reagan's yeah, just I took Nancy no. Reagan's advice yeah, and just say a, no. A couple brands of drugs where I was like, I'm good on that. You know, crack. Uh, heroin, they, they, they don't have very great reputations nah. in terms of your own personal health or, you know, integration into normal society. <laughs> you know. So, you know, I wasn't selling 30 million albums. I would have been stealing your shit. It would have been a problem. Do you have a show subject you think would be a great fit for Asshole Court? Hit us up on any of our social media pages and let us know. As you know, we're full of good ideas and some say full of other stuff, but we'd love to hear your ideas as well. Give us a shout, and maybe your subject will wind up in our courtroom. We'll definitely give you a shout-out. Now, let's dive back into the courtroom. But there was more to the backstory of Kurt's drug use. The dude seemed to have a fucked-up stomach for pretty much most of his life. In a number of interviews I've read with him, he spoke incessantly about how his stomach has been jacked up, and they never really figured out what was wrong with him. Stress seemed to make it bad. And it was the chicken and egg when he did heroin. He said it made him feel better, not feel sick. But everyone else said that the heroin was making him puke. Cobain claimed that he was determined to get a habit as a way to self-medicate his stomach condition. Oh, okay. It started with three days in a row of doing heroin, and I don't have any stomach pain. This was such a relief, he said. However, his longtime friend Buzz Osborne disputed this, saying his stomach pain was more likely caused by his heroin use. Mm -hmm. He made it up for sympathy so he could use it as an excuse to stay loaded course he was vomiting that's what people on heroin do they vomit it's called vomiting with a smile on your face yeah dope sick yeah yeah also i've just figured out had he not killed himself what he would be doing he would be doing some sort of uh commercial for GlaxoSmithKline for crohn's disease <laughs> some some medication hi i'm kurt cobain you, you guys may remember me yeah from 1991 smells like he said, i had the worst stomach problems but now you know then it shows him like kayaking and kickboxing <laughs> me and francis get out often. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Riding a bicycle. <laughs> yeah. Inspirational music playing Absolutely. in the background. Nervoxin. <laughs> You're going to love it. He also had chronic bronchitis that was linked to a stomach issue, and the fact that he screamed from his abdomen for a living for a decade or so didn't do him any good. But regardless of the health issues, the dude loved drugs, and it wasn't just after they got famous. Kurt first started smoking weed when he was about 13 and continued into adulthood. This isn't uncommon. But the next part is what kept him on a fine line between hammer and licks and homelessness. Cobain hit a period of consuming notable amounts of LSD when he was with Tracy Miranda, drank way too much, and got into solvent abuse, a.k.a. huffing paint and other shit around the house that'll fuck you up and make your face turn colors. Oh, yeah. Geez. He That's... fucking huffed paint, dude. dude. That was really a lot more common in the 70s and 80s. In fact, I was just watching a murder show recently about this guy in Houston that was luring teenage boys to back to his house and he would kill them. But the thing was, is like he had these other teenage boys that were like his go getters, you know, and this one, they're like, Oh, we went back to his house and they were going to, um, we we're going to drink and, and huff paint. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I like, like the first part yeah, of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> makes sense. yeah. So I was just like, yeah. And they're like, Oh, this is real easy. This paint's cheap, you know, but uh, the kids used to huff glue back then. And my dad used to tell me about dudes that would huff glue in school and stuff like that. Yeah. I guess they just didn't have access to, to cool it? shit. Yeah. We, yeah. 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 Salvia, something. Yeah. <laughs> Novoselic said that Kurt was really into getting fucked up drugs, acid, any kind of drug. Cobain first took heroin in 1986, administered to him by a dealer in Tacoma, who had previously been hooking him up with oxycodone. Cobain used heroin sporadically for several years, but by the end of 1990, 
his use had developed straight into addiction. Cobain's heroin use began to affect Nirvana's Nevermind tour. During a 1992 photo shoot with Michael Levine, he fell asleep several times, having used heroin beforehand. Cobain told biographer Michael Azarad, They're not going to be able to stop me, so I really don't care. Obviously to them, it was like practicing witchcraft or something. They didn't really know anything about it, so they thought that for any second, I was going to die. The morning after the band's performance on Saturday Night Live in 1992 that Buddy just talked about, Cobain experienced his first near-death overdose after injecting heroin when Courtney Love resuscitated him. We'll get into her in a second. Prior to a performance in the New York Music Seminar in New York City on July 23, 1993, Cobain suffered another overdose. Rather than calling for an ambulance, Love injected Cobain with Narcan to resuscitate him. Cobain proceeded to perform with Nirvana, giving the public no indication that anything had happened. What the absolute fuck, man? I've heard it getting a little stone before work, but Jesus, man, going full boat OD before a show, getting hammered with some Narcan to get brought back to life and then yeah. go clock in. That's strong, man. Jeez, if you man. talk to some That's of those strong. heroin addicts and stuff like that, like ODs are just like part of the game almost. It's wild. It's a, in fact, there was there's a, a an infamous thread that was on Reddit where a guy, and you could follow it because he put a post up, but he was like, I'm gonna. It was on the drug subreddit, and if I recall correctly, and he was like, I don't know, you know, I'm just gonna give heroin a try. Well, you can go read his whole like journey into hell with heroin over the course oh, no. of the next couple of years oh. and like ODs and stuff like that and it is just again another reason the brand name not so great for heroin yeah yeah it will kill you it feels very good but incredibly addictive but yeah I mean a lot of those people are just like yeah the oh Narcan like you, a normal person would be like okay all right well that's that's my stop that's on that. this yeah uh, <laughs> but a lot of them are just like no nah, it's all good but I mean he OD'd yep Got hit with Narcan, came back and went out and put on a show. Yeah. Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny when they recorded Unplugged in New York, mm-hmm. the day they did it, Kurt was so fucked up, they weren't sure who was going to show up, yeah. right? How he was going to show up. And so they brought in guitarist Pat Smear. Yeah. So when you watch right. Unplugged in New York, there's another dude that wasn't in Nirvana sitting yep. there playing a, a red, white, and blue. Or it's like no, a it, was blue. Red, it was green, yellow, and red. That's it. Yeah. It's a, a multicolored guitar, acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. In the background, you're like, who's that? It's a dude named Pat Smear. Yep. And he's been around forever. Yep. Um, but they brought him in to play guitar in case Kurt showed up too fucked up to yep. play guitar and sing. He was just going to sing, and Pat would have played guitar. We've That's all why done they, that, though. And I they mean, brought Pat on for that a lot yeah. following that was yeah. just so that it would free him up to just pretty much sing the lyrics and do a couple of the solos. Yeah. I mean, we've all done it, though. I mean, it's very much like my life where, you know, you go a little hard in paint and you got to go to work with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they gotta have somebody else do your job just in case. <laughs> yeah, maybe. right. Yeah. You, know, but hey, you might hey, take hey. a you might take a goodies headache powder, and they're mm-hmm. all like snorting coke and stuff to get back up. You just go, you know, rinse your face off a couple times in the bathroom, <laughs> come back out there, you know, close your <laughs> office door. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for all of us, he kept it cool that night and gave us a fucking awesome album. They almost kicked Dave Grohl out of the band that same night too, because according to Kurt, he was hitting the drums too hard. And uh, for the unplugged version, so they like gave him like what are those like kind of like fan yeah. uh, drumsticks, mm-hmm. and he was able to pull it off at the last second. He said, "Grohl said that he dealt with a lot of bullshit towards the end, uh, especially mostly from 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 Kurt." I could see that. Yeah. Well, uh, Dave said that you were either in with the cool kids or not in with the cool kids, mm-hmm. and that just basically meant you either did heroin or you didn't. And the, those that didn't do heroin kind of got shunned by Kurt, mm-hmm. which and pushed was out, which was everybody else in the band. Yeah, exactly. Chris, yeah. yeah, Chris didn't, Chris do didn't it. fuck with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine the amount of heroin you have to give that guy 
He's like a fucking Wookiee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fill it up. <laughs> so I mentioned Courtney Love, and I've also mentioned a couple other ladies that Kurt had a relationship with, but she by far is the one that everybody remembers being with Kurt. Because both of their memories sucked, there are differing times as to when Kurt met Courtney. Either way, it was around 1989 or 1990, and both Kurt and Courtney were in bands. Like the very feminine dude he was, Courtney totally hit on him and was digging him from the start, but Kurt kept dodging her for a while. The thing I didn't know about this story is that Dave Grohl was into Courtney too. But in a pretty short amount of time, I think Dave saw just how fucked up Courtney was and decided he wasn't really into that, so he just let it go. By the end of 1991, Nevermind was the number one album, and Kurt and Courtney were enjoying each other's company by getting as fucked up as a football bat. Mm-hmm. And getting married in Hawaii. That's it. On February 24th, 1992, a few days after the conclusion of Nirvana's Pacific Rim Tour, Cobain and Love were married on Waikiki Beach in Hawaii. Love wore a satin and lace dress once owned by Francis Farmer, who I went on a weird deep dive on because I didn't really know who that was. There was a I, song on, um, whatchamacallit? Incesticide. Or yeah, I think Incesticide. One of the two. Yeah. Yep. And she was an actress that kind of had a mental health crisis and freaked out. And they got pictures of her freaking out in the courtroom and... She just kind of was told she went crazy, but they're now like, dude, she had a mental health breakdown. And yeah. So kind of like hindsight. And high IQ Courtney Love was like, that's the dress I want. Yeah. And so cool, man. And Cobain donned a Guatemalan purse and wore green pajamas because he was too lazy to put on a tux, his quote. Yeah. Eight people were in attendance at the ceremony, including Grohl. Do you know who wasn't at the wedding? Who? Chris Novoselic. Okay. And, uh he was petitioning that he was he was making a stand. He was like, I hate Courtney, really? so I'm not going to come and support this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. I could kind of see that because she probably was his, you know, just his getting fucked up buddy. His yeah. Yoko Ono pretty much at yeah. the end of the day. Oh, I just imagine myself walking up on the beach and seeing that fucking wedding and being like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that why does that do? Purse? And why yeah. does he keep nodding off? <laughs> yeah. Did he just fall down? The couple's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, was born August 18th, 1992, and in that same year, a Vanity Fair article wrote, Love had admitted to a drug binge with Cobain in the early weeks of her pregnancy. At the time, she claimed that Vanity Fair misquoted her, and Love later admitted to using heroin before knowing she was pregnant. The couple were asked by the press if Frances was addicted to drugs at birth. The Los Angeles County Department of Children's Services visited the Cobains days after Love gave birth and later took them to court, stating that their drug usage made them unfit parents. The investigation was eventually dismissed and Francis was returned home. They employed several nannies over the next two years to help them care for her. Both of her parents, unfortunately, were still battling their drug problems during this time. In March of 94, Francis went to visit her father at a rehab center in Los Angeles with her nanny, and this may have been the last time that she ever saw her father. Following an in utero tour stop in Munich, Germany on March 1st, 94, Cobain was diagnosed again with bronchitis and laryngitis. He flew to Rome the next day for medical treatment and was joined there by his wife, Courtney, on March 3rd. The next morning, Love awoke to find that Cobain had overdosed on a combination of champagne and roofinol. That's right. He fucking oh, roofied himself. Man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We talked about that in the Courtney Love episode. I was too. about to say, this isn't the first time we've heard this one, nope. right? Because yeah, we talked about, like, yeah, his, you're like, hey, I mean, this champagne's not enough. I just want to go ahead and just uh, date rate myself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> After five days, Cobain was released and returned to Seattle. Love later said that that incident was Cobain's first suicide attempt. On March 18, 1994, Love phoned the Seattle police, informing them that Cobain was suicidal. He had locked himself in a room and with a gun. Police arrived and confiscated several guns and bottles of pills from Cobain, who insisted that he wasn't suicidal and had locked himself in the room to hide from Love. 
Love arranged an intervention regarding Cobain's drug use on March 25th of 1994. About 10 people involved, including musicians, record company execs, and one of Cobain's closest friends, Dylan Carlson. Cobain reacted with anger, insulting and heaping scorn on the participants and locked himself in an upstairs bedroom. However, by the end of the day, Cobain agreed to undergo a detox program and he entered a residential facility in Los Angeles for a few days on March 30th of 1994. Called Exodus. Exodus was the name of the place? Yeah, that was the name of the place. Exodus Movement Ganja People. <laughs> they <laughs> named it after the Bob Marley song. You know that, right? <laughs> That's right. The following night, Cobain left the facility and flew to Seattle. On the flight, he sat near Duff McKeegan of Guns N' Roses. Despite Cobain's animosity towards Guns N' Roses, Cobain seemed happy to see McKeegan. McKeegan later said that he knew from all my instincts that something was wrong because they had had run-ins in the past. Axl Rose and mm-hmm. Nirvana had run-ins before. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was a music festival, I think, where either Axl said something about Courtney or his kid or something. Yeah. Like, it got kind of yeah, personal. Yeah, it got heated, for yeah. sure. We covered that one in the Axl Rose episode. Axl Rose episode, yeah. yeah. Right. Nice. Funny how all this is uh, yeah, coming full circle. we covered it all. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I heard an interview with Duff where he was talking about they happened to be just seated next to each other on the plane ride home from Vegas, or from L.A. to Seattle. Seattle, and you know they were drinking a cup. You know they were drinking along the way, but he was like, "Yeah, he seems like sad or just there's something wrong." And they were at the uh, the luggage claim thing, and then like maybe Kurt went outside to like catch his ride, and whoever Duff was with was like, "Maybe we should like." hang out with him or something like that like he he wasn't like i knew he was going to commit suicide or anything huh. like that but he's like i think we should hang out with him and they went out to get him and he had actually already just gotten into the car got into his off. uber yeah oh. exactly <laughs> he uh still had on his bracelet from the rehab facility uh, yeah, yeah he scaled a wall and just ran to the airport pretty much yeah most of cobain's friends and family were unaware of his whereabouts and on april 7th amid rumors of nirvana breaking up the band pulled out of the 1994 Lollapalooza festival do you know who filled in for them? Was it Nine Inch Nails? Oh, man, nope. no. They got booed mercifully because everybody was pissed. Everybody was pissed off, so that's where Green Day <sighs> Green came Day, in. That's and right. that's where you have the infamous mud throwing. That was a Woodstock. 100%. I'll bet yeah. my legs on that one. Yeah, not, that was Woodstock. Woodstock 93. Unless there then, was another mud throwing incident at all, Blues. But I remember. Well, uh, outside of the mud throwing incident. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong on the mud throwing incident, yeah. but Green Day was the fill. Like, they got the call. Yeah. That Kurt's dead. Do yeah, you want yeah. to fill in? That could definitely be the case. Yeah. yeah. I remember the infamous mud fight was was at Woodstock. Was that at Woodstock? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Okay. We had that, that VHS tape we used to watch yeah, yeah. back in the yeah. day. Yeah. On April 8th, Cobain's body was discovered at his Lake Washington Boulevard home by an electrician who had arrived to install a security system at the house. So again, I uh, said in the intro read. Question. Yeah, exactly. What would you do? What would you do? I mean, obviously, you'd probably show up and say, what the fuck, and call the cops, you know? Yeah. Yeah call the cops i wonder if he knew who he was and if he was like dude i'm going to his house i wonder if he's going to be there and you show up and you're like he's here an electrician what the fuck? i'd assume the electrician was probably in his 40s in washington i don't think he was real big on the grunge scene nah. but also but he knew i i figured that you got to know something because the neighborhood that he went into was courtney was pressing kurt to get a house that matched his level of fame so that's when they bought that house up there mm-hmm. off of like lake Washington, Lake Lake Washington, or whatever. It was right next door to the one of the chairmen's of Starbucks, mm-hmm. and Bill Gates was clearing the land across yeah, like, yeah, Lake to yep. to build his house and really? stuff like that. So you're an electrician coming into that neighborhood. You know, it's somebody important, and you see yeah. like a 27 year old kid. You're like, holy shit! Like this oh, is 
don't somebody. think he recognized him as a 27-year-old kid from what he did to himself, <laughs> to be honest. That's not even meant to be a, a mean joke. I honestly, that's sort of a devastating way to go out, dude. Like, somebody's going to find you, and a 12-gauge tw- to the head is just And it sounds like the home situation was so fucked up, right? Because he was in Seattle, mm-hmm. and his kid wasn't there, his wife wasn't there. He was I just guess, by himself. Yeah, he was just by himself. Days. Yeah. I think Dylan, his friend, went to go check on him or something like that, but couldn't get in the house or something like that. I don't remember. So, yeah, that fuels all of the Courtney Love conspiracy murder theories. There's some guy out there that um, swears to God that Courtney Love offered him $50,000. Oh, yeah, that guy's dead now. El Duce. He walked in front of a train. El Duce. So he claims that he said, she offered me $50,000 to kill him. I thought she was kidding. He ended up dying like eight days after that interview posted, but he was like, I know who did kill him, and it was Alan Wrench. And so apparently Alan Wrench is just some also some punk guy or yeah. something like that. You tell by the name. Alan Wrench. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, apparently, according to uh, some of the conspiracy theorists, Alan Wrench, shortly after that, he bought a new house, a sports car and a big old truck. Yeah. That was also fueled the conspiracy. Oh, I'm sure. I, I don't. It's. You know the guy Il Duce that we're talking about is. I mean that guy was. Uh, he was like Gigi Allen in yeah, a lot he, of ways. Yeah, he looked like Gigi Allen. He, yeah, he bit. did, yeah. and he had it sort of. Say, nothing would surprise me either way, right? It's really a coin toss because he's the type of dude who would just make up shit to be sort of provocative and be sure. like, "Fuck yeah, dude!" Yeah. But also, maybe <laughs> you know, I'm not like I. I think that he killed himself, but I wouldn't be totally utterly stunned to find out that Courtney Love I mean obviously the motive is built in there if he's going to divorce her and she's potentially going to lose everything or whatever and she was much more into you know the finer things in life or whatever it was or just being able to do drugs freely and go around the world maybe well there is the theory that she after the success of Nevermind mm-hmm. got into Kurt's head and said that for in utero that he got to write 100% of the lyrics and mm-hmm. take home 75% of the royalties mm-hmm. or Kurt started demanding that he, if I don't get this I'm going to leave the band mm-hmm. so I don't know if that actually came into fruition or not mm-hmm. but if so all the in utero money came back to Kurt and then mm-hmm. I guess to her by default yeah. uh, afterwards. Well, yeah, you know? I mean, that's a huge amount of money. I mean, like I said, they sold like $30 million for Nevermind, of yeah. course. It's all built in. The The motive is built in there, but also, again, we're talking about the guy who wrote I Hate Myself and Want to Die. It's not And he iced himself with a shotgun blast, which, like, you'd have, if somebody killed him, mm-hmm. you have to be in a pretty odd spot to be able to shoot somebody as if they committed suicide. Well, with the a argument there, the, and they always bring this up, they're like, he had a massive amount of heroin. If a person had that much heroin, they, they wouldn't be, like, actually functional. But the point that they're missing is that, like, heroin addicts can do a lot of heroin. Yeah. You know, you build yeah, up a tolerance. Rev up. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's like, like, you know, a dude that, that drinks a good bit. Like me, I can sit there and drink a six pack, and I'm okay. Not, not really a big deal. But, like, if my dad drank a six-pack, he would be fucked (laughs) up. Throwing up and stuff like that. There's also talk that he had lithium in his system. Yeah. And uh, there's a theory that she gave him a little bit of lithium, and then they just injected him with heroin. Yeah. It's it's all, like I said, you could sort of, like, you know, back that thing out and engineer it however you want to. I'll still stick with the same, man. If more than one person knows, it's not a secret. I agree. And if there's two people that knew about it, that story would be out. That's why it'll do Especially some train. punk kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like punk kids at that, like not yeah. the brightest, yeah. you yeah. know, sharpest. But I don't know. Courtney Love was a genius level. That's right. You know, person she was tested. So same as the right. same, same level as Ted Kaczynski. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> A suicide note was found addressed to Cobain's childhood imaginary friend, Boda. 
that stated that Cobain had not felt the excitement of listening as well as creating music, along with really writing for too many years now. Cobain's body had been there for days. The coroner's report estimated he had died on April 5, 1994, again at the age of 27. Public vigil was held on April 10th at a park near Seattle Center, drawing approximately 7,000 mourners. And I remember watching this on MTV when it happened. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. The candlelight visuals. Yep. And, and yeah, Courtney, there was pre-recorded messages by Kirsten Novoselic and uh, Courtney Love, and they played, and Love read portions of the suicide note and was crying and kind of chastising Kurt. And near the end of the vigil, uh, she distributed some of Cobain's clothing to those that were still in attendance. So yeah. mm. Some folks out there have, like, Kurt that Cobain's sweet-ass green sweater from Unplugged. Oh, oh man. man. Cool. Yeah. But also, do you know what is interesting, though, is that suicide note, that last piece does look a little strange. There is a little bit. The to last it, right? portion that sounds like if you take that last piece out, sounds less like a suicide note and more sort of like a, I don't know, I'm gonna quit Nirvana. The handwriting looks a little different towards the end, and that's when it really is sort of like inloaded, sort of like Randy's intro. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's a, are you? What would you do if you're an electrician <laughs> and you found a guy with his head blown? <laughs> Have you seen this letter? Like what Mikey's talking oh, yeah, about, Randy? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it does kind of like it looks very like. Almost like fourth grade cursive, like all yeah. the way through it, and then all of a sudden there's like big block capital letters yeah. that like it are added at the end. Doesn't match up. It looks strange. But That's, that was kind of his brain. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm you not know? saying it's yeah. yeah. It's it's weird enough to where you're kind of like scratching your head. You're oh, like, it was what? fucking. He addressed weird. it to an imaginary person. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, how like literal are we taking all of this? Well, no, I'm saying, but like shifting your even like the your your penmanship seems interesting. I don't know. I don't like. I, I'm on the he committed suicide train, but it is one of those things where you're just kind of like, there's enough there that really it's worth sort of looking at. The conspiracy theorists say that uh, the original part of the letter was Kurt's like leaving the band right. letter, and then Courtney came in and added all the stuff at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. After the fact to make it look like the suicide. Yeah, yeah. it was kind of about, and I think he stuck it in a plant with a pen or something like that. Yeah, I can't remember that part, but he, yeah. I don't know. Either way, I'm pretty sure he killed himself, but, you know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did, too. Girls said the news of Cobain's death was probably the worst thing that's happened to me in my life. I remember the day after I woke up, and I was just heartbroken he was gone. I was just like, okay, so I get to wake up today and have another day, and he doesn't? Girl believed that he knew Cobain would die at an early age, saying that sometimes you just can't save somebody from themselves, and in some ways, you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that to be a reality. Dave Reed, who for a short time had been Cobain's foster father, said that he had the desperation, not the courage, to be himself. Once you do that, you can't go wrong, but you can't make any mistakes when people love you for being yourself. But for Kurt, it didn't matter that other people loved him. He simply didn't love himself enough. A final ceremony was arranged by Cobain's mother on May 31, 1999, and was attended by Love and Tracy Miranda. As a Buddhist monk chanted, daughter Frances Bean scattered some of Cobain's ashes into McLean Creek in Olympia, Washington, the city where he had found his true artistic muse. In 2006, Love said that she retained the rest of Cobain's ashes, kept in a bank vault in Los Angeles because no cemetery in Seattle will take them. And that, boys, is Kurt Cobain. Okay. All right. All right. No cemetery would take them? No, that's what, that Kurt, that's what like Courtney Love said. No cemetery in Seattle will take the ashes. Liar! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure somebody would be like, You're willing yeah. to have them. Yeah. All Imagine right. the fucking attention that would oh, draw. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like Jim Morrison's grave in Paris that oh, gets yeah. all fucked up all the, time. all the time. Or Gigi Allen's grave where people just shit on it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just <laughs> weird. <laughs> well, I mean, for Gigi Allen, it, it matches. That's yeah. a bit on brand. It tracks. It's, yeah. It's you leave a big true. fucking grocery snake on the top of that headstone. <laughs> 
All right, man. So uh, one of the uh, the grunge masters from our our teenage years. Let's get some final scores for uh, Kurt Cobain, buddy. What you got? All right. So final scores for old Kurt. You know, we've dealt with this a, a couple of times here on the show where it's do we rate somebody higher because of, you know, like what they did under the influence of drugs? I mean, there's been plenty of celebrities that we've covered that, you know, were in similar shoes. But uh, the thing that always just really chaps my ass is the fact that he had a kid and he could have easily just faded into oblivion, taken all of his money and gone off and just, you know, raised his kid did whatever, gotten out of the public view 100%. It's not like he couldn't have bought 50 acres out in the middle of nowhere and just, you know, isolated himself. But, you know, drugs make you do stupid things. And um, it's hard for me because, like I've you know said a couple of times, we had a friend that was like this growing up. And I, I don't know, it, he was also a little bit into drugs. And so, you know, like, is it the drugs that made him the asshole or were you already an asshole to begin with? But at the end of the day, it doesn't sound like he was a super asshole to anybody. He was just a bit selfish, mm-hmm. uh, really hard on himself. Didn't, you know, never really, you know, I, I, I get it. Imposter syndrome uh, where you really make it big, but you don't understand why you do. And you compare yourself to everybody else in a sense, all your heroes and your idols. And uh, you just never see yourself in the same light as them. But to, to kill yourself at the end of the day, that, that's just where I, I, I've always had a problem with him specifically in this particular case. But I don't really think that that makes him a huge asshole. So at the beginning of the show, I had him at a uh, 6.92, and I'm going to have to drop him down a bit. I mean, I think there's some parallels in a sense to Elvis Presley just by getting you know the level of fame that you have that kind of isolates you and doesn't put you back in with with society i guess but still five two six a little low for me i'm gonna put him um one point above where we had him pre-show and i'm gonna put him up there with steven seagal because i hate steven seagal and even though i love kurt's music it, it's always pissed me off that he killed himself so yeah i'm gonna put him at a 6.0 as a final asshole score for kurt cobain all right 6.0 for buddy mikey what you got i don't know the, on the suicide thing i just feel bad for people that are in those situations where they're that like depressed you know like uh there's a guy david foster wallace who was a pretty famous author he wrote infinite jest he ended up killing himself and he was always talking about yeah he had suffered depression for like a really long time and he was like it's hard to explain why somebody would choose that like obviously from a rational perspective you wouldn't ever choose to kill yourself especially if you have obligations and stuff like that but he always sort of compared it especially like with 9-11 his comparison was always like the people that jumped out of the buildings during 9-11 didn't jump out because they wanted to survive. They jumped out because it was a better alternative than burning to and death. Burning, right? Yeah, exactly. So he was like always saying, he's like, that's if, if you want to understand sort of the, the thought process of somebody who's like has suicidal like ideations, tendencies, whatnot, and is extremely depressed. Sometimes that's their best option because they feel like, you know, whether it's, it's right or wrong, objectively, subjectively, they feel like they just can't go on with it anymore. But see, and I understand that, but I think it's a bit of a cop-out on Kurt's point because, and I once again, I, I, I don't understand it very well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he kind of got to the point where he was like, at the end, he was like, you know, I just, I, I hate it. I know the amount of joy I bring to people, but I can't 
receive any of that joy. Mm-hmm. It's like when well, I feel like I need to be clocking into a time clock right before I step onto stage mm-hmm. and clock out when I get out, and I just take no joy in it, and mm-hmm. it's just all this bullshit. But let me OD real quick before I clock in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's just man, fuck yeah. him. I don't yeah. know. I've always had a problem with it. I just, it's hard for me to comment unless I'm in that person's situation. I guess so I always been more forgiving on like the suicide front. It's unfortunate that it happened. Certainly unfortunate for Francis Bean. I think largely the asshole rating comes from him just being kind of an emotional, immature prick a lot of times. You know? Sure. His interactions and stuff I read with Dave Grohl, even some stuff with like Chris Novoselic, he just, I think you were correct when you were talking about him being selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, and, and that sucks. You know, I don't think I'd ever want to hang out with him. You know, I think kind of see that. Yeah, I wouldn't want to hang out with Kurt Cobain. It would be sort of annoying. I mean, it'd be interesting, I guess, in the sense like, now, if you go back, oh, weird, this is sort of an important moment in music, but like to like have him as like a friend like and do a podcast with him? Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> 1990 just happened to be sitting next to him in an airport, strike yeah. up a conversation Oh, with yeah, him. yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. wouldn't happen. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I OD'd right before we did this show, <laughs> and uh, Randy, Narcan, <laughs> and me, right. I just woke right up, so they sort of know what that's like. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah. But no, um, in fact, I, there was one guy that was, there was the infamous show that was in, I think it was in Dallas, Texas, or was it Austin, where... Remember, he hit somebody, the security guard, with his guitar and then got knocked out on stage? Do you remember? It was in a ton of videos. Uh, I thought he threw a, his guitar up and it came down. And that was that Chris, hit Chris Novoselic. Chris Novoselic did that to himself. No, no, no. no. This I is thought. a different one. This is when he was, he, was, he was crowd surfing with his guitar and he ended up hitting. He like took it and used it as a weapon. I've seen this. Hit the security guard in the head with his guitar. The security guard jumped up on stage and fucking flatlined him, <laughs> and literally the music stops. <laughs> and I found an article with that guy, nice, with the security guard, because he was like, "I had to get the fuck out of there." Yeah. Like he was like, "It was crazy, dude." And they were interviewing him, and he was just talking about like throughout the course of the whole thing. Of course, you know, grain of salt here. He's a little biased. He got uh, hit yeah. in the guitar, <laughs> but he was just talking about. He was like, "Dude," he was like, "He was such a fucking pretentious asshole when he showed up," and he was like, we "We're trying to get him to autograph all this stuff." He's like. He sat there. He's like fifty things. He's like, I don't know if you've never been in the music business, dude. You do fifty of these autographs, and then you call it a day. They just signed, and it was a big deal with Geffen or whatever. And he was just like, he was just a dick, and like he just like antisocial, basically yeah, is the best way you sure. describe it. And I think that that's probably an accurate portrayal. So with that in mind, I would put him. I don't. I think he's better than Courtney Love. I don't think he's as much of an asshole as her. I'm gonna put him with uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, I'll say he's the goat of grunge music and put him at a 5.45. There it is, 5.45 for Mikey. Randy, bring us home. All right, so definitely, you know, echo a lot of what you guys talked about. And it kind of goes back to what we said. It's that immaturity. The You you, you said it well. I wouldn't want to hang out with him, I don't yeah. think. Because if, if you didn't know who he was, like... If you didn't agree with like everything, he would just think you were just a big uh-huh. douche, and he'd let you know. Oh, and honestly, the way I dress, he would think I'm a total douche. Hundred percent. I wear All a lot of sitting here. Yeah, like, you I know. wear like sweater vests and polo shirts mm-hmm. and shit, and like you yeah. wouldn't fit. Oh, in. he would not. Your corporate, your corporate is fuck, Randy. <laughs> yeah, I am. Whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> so my fuck. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I guess it is what it is. It's who he was, but I definitely, absolutely enjoy the music, and as you know, kind of goes back. It's one of those nostalgic things where. In that time, with that music, it's one of those things you remember, and it really just kind of sticks with you, and I think that is why it's those bands that still, you see kind of the resurgence with stuff that Mm -hmm. was popular when we were kids, right? 
Um, these bands are still hanging around because guys like us still listen to them. Mm-hmm. Baseball cards, another thing, yeah, popping sure. back up. Yep. Some of that shit that's was it's now thirty years old yeah. that was popular thirty years ago. It's dudes that have expendable income, and they're like, what do I want? Yeah. Baseball cards yeah. again. The same shit that I had when I was 12. Yeah, that yeah. I couldn't have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm a bot now. Big truck of baseball cards. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, I don't like, I do. I, I still kind of sticks. It pisses me off too, buddy, that he killed himself. I, w- I would just be very interested to see where he was. So I'm going to up him a little bit. I'm going to put him at a 5.43 as my final score. All right. With a 6.0 from Buddy, a 5.45 from Mikey. And a 5.43 from Randy. Kurt Cobain's final asshole score is a 5.63. All right, 5.63. Oddly enough, just above Courtney Love, his ex-wife, at 5.5. And just below Facebook CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg at 5.67. Yeah. So in between. In between. between. (laughs) Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and Courtney Love falls Kurt Cobain. Interesting territory. Very interesting territory. I would hope he would have been further away from Courtney, but... Nope, right next to her. Yeah. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Asshole Court. As always on Patreon, uh, hit us up with comments about all of our shows. If you aren't on Patreon, you need to get there. It's where all of our Conspiracy Court episodes are. You get shout-outs. We got stickers and swag coming out in the next month or so, next couple weeks. You guys should actually see that. So if you're not in, go check it out. Patreon.com slash podcast. Got to put the full name in there to find it because we are explicit. So as always, we appreciate all your support. We want you to be kind to one another, and we'll see you next time on Asshole Court. Asshole Court.